Well, let's open our Bibles to Matthew 17. We're going to finish the chapter off with a paragraph that's unique only to Matthew's gospel. This is an account that is tucked into Matthew, but you won't find this account repeated in Mark, Luke, or John. And it's talking about taxes. It's talking about paying your taxes. The temple tax. You know, this is kind of that season too, right? Where you need to get your taxes in. We need to get our taxes in. Get the shoebox full of all the different things that you get that you compile and go, okay, I got to put that together and then submit it. How is this important for us this morning? And why did Matthew include this apart from the other gospels? Well, Matthew, by trade, was a tax collector, so I don't know if he had special interest in this account or not because of that, but it's a curious passage, and it's curious even in light of the series that I've been talking through and where I think that the tone and tenor of this chapter has taken us, that these are lessons from the transfiguration. There was an incredible life event for Peter, James, and John in the presence of Christ and his transfigured glory emanating up on the mountaintop in front of them, seeing the divine Savior, fully human but fully God in all of his effulgence and glory, and then coming off of that, coming out of a mountaintop experience of all mountaintop experiences, to then come boots on the ground, down to ground zero, and live your life in a sin-cursed world. What does that look like? How do you live life to the glory of God in the mundane when the glory switch has sort of been shut off? You have Christ who's just incredible, like just we're we're in blinding glory, like heaven on earth where Peter's going, let's build three tents right now, call it good, plant the flag, it's heaven now. Jesus shuts it all down. On the way down, he starts... Reviewing the lessons. Lesson number one, listen to Jesus. God the Father said, listen to him. Follow Jesus. Lesson number two, live in light of the redemption plan. Understand, be a discerning Christian. Be a discerning follower of Jesus. He's going to die. How do you fit into this gospel plan? Number three, exercise faith. Exercise a strong and growing faith. The disciples down on ground zero couldn't exercise the demon out of the little boy. And Jesus did it, and he's encouraging living by a growing faith. You can't do this on your own. You can't do this in your own strength was that lesson. And then when he tells that he's going to die on the cross again, He says he's going to be raised. They don't even listen to that. He says that one more time, and they are greatly distressed. You remember that from last time. Verse 23, greatly distressed. They're coming unglued still by the fact that Jesus is going to leave them soon and give himself over to death. What's all this going to mean, and how do we live out the Christian life? We had the glory moment. Now we're down on earth, and we're falling apart in distress suddenly. Well, this is a text about paying the temple tax. There couldn't be anything more mundane than something like this. How does this teach us anything about living for Christ? Well, when there's a letdown, you have to keep going. Listen to the text in light of that. It says, when, verse 24, when they came to Capernaum, 
the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter, said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, the sons are free. Then the sons are free. However, do not, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the fish first that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is about engaging culture. When you're back down on earth, when you've come off the mountaintop, you got to live a life in a culture where you got to pay taxes, where you got to engage the culture, whether you agree with it or not, in a posture of submission, coming under authority. What does that look like? Especially when the authority is something that you perhaps don't trust anymore. How do we live the Christian life and engage it in light of heaven that's promised, heaven that we've been exposed to or they had, we have in our hearts. We, we know we're kingdom citizens. We know we're going somewhere. This world isn't our home. We know we're passing through. We're strangers. We're aliens, as First Peter says. We're going to heaven. So how do we now live on earth? It's called two kingdom citizenship mindset living as citizens of two worlds at once, on earth and in heaven. How do we do it? A lot of people would say, well, Jesus just said he's going to die. So what do we care? I'm sad about that. I don't care about living in submission. Secondly, he's going to die. And so what does it matter? Who cares about paying taxes here? We're all going to die anyway. A lot of times people take extreme positions. They either say, I'm a child of the king of heaven, so I don't want to engage culture at all. I'm just checking out. Even emotionally, I'm just checking out. The second way to engage culture in an extreme way is to over-engage it, I think, believing as a Christian and a citizen that you need to reform the culture before you leave it. You need to change it and make it Christian. Make it yield. Instead of submitting to it, you say it needs to submit to me. There's phrases that uh, have sort of tried to capture these debates. One is Christians need to be in the world but not of the world. Where do you find that Bible verse? That's not a Bible verse. But people have made it to a Bible verse because people say it so much. It's a good theological idea. Another one is you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good and flip it on its head and say well you can be so earthly minded that you're no heavenly good you know well how about that how about them apples i mean people just they they kind of bat this thing around in their minds because they're trying to find the appropriate balance of citizen on earth and citizen in heaven at the same time the phrases have some merit but what is the appropriate balance jesus gives some different ideas along the way in his teaching. We need to be salt and light. We need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We need to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And to Pilate, as he's under trial going to the cross, he says, my kingdom is not of this, what? 
world. Paul echoes this in Philippians. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. We're shining lights, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's hard to strike the right balance. It's hard to just hit the right path with something like this. What's the practical balance? You know, there's a, so there's a book that uh, has hit the sort of Amazon, um, you know, sales bestsellers list. It's been one of the most popular 100 books that's being bought now over the last several months. And it's, um, it's on Christian nationalism, Christian nationalism. I'm getting ready with a couple of pastors to go down to a conference. And by and large, it's the Shepherds Conference. About 4,000 pastors there have elders from all over the country and the world that come to this conference and to talk about issues. It'll be streaming online. And I think one of the main key issues that's going to be discussed is Christian nationalism. And that's not nationalism in a good thing. It's not just patriotism. It's not being just a good citizen where we're grateful for where we live and the country we love. It's the idea of blurring, blurring the lines between your Christian citizenship and your American citizenship and saying it's the same thing. And it better be. And it better be. It's a doubling down idea. It's, it's really reacting against the woke liberal um, radical liberalism, militant liberalism, where it's a renewed outcry for saying we are a Christian nation. But they're trying to accomplish that, this book is, through a what I would say a radical right-wing wokeism. It's kind of a reverse wokeism. It's saying we're, we need to be the same socio-ethnic um, group. We're a, we're a movement that's going to take back the country by militant force, by enforcing biblical law on the country. That's Christian nationalism. There's been efforts like this in church history where you have Geneva, Calvin's Geneva. You have the Puritan um, sort of movement in our country in the early colonies enforcing laws according to the Bible. And I'm not saying that laws shouldn't arise from biblical principles. That, that's a good thing, the Judeo-Christian ethic and all that we've had and held dear. But the idea of enforcing it is um, where I would take issue. How do we strike the right balance to engage our world? Let's look at how Jesus did it. I think it's very important to see what he did. This is living as a two-kingdom citizen. And it's verses 24 to 27. How are believers supposed to respond to our government, even an evil government, a pagan government, perhaps even a post-Christian government? How do we respond? What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to take it back over? Well, I think it's important for us to strike the right biblical balance, especially with um, who might be our Republican or Democratic candidates to be voted into office. We need the Bible right now, don't we? More than ever before. We need to think like Jesus wants us to think. So it would be the right witness, however we vote or whatever we do. Looking to Jesus, we can find out what he wants us to do by tracing the questions that he asks Really, the first question is, will Jesus pay this tax? 
verse 24, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter. They didn't go right to Jesus. They went to the spokesman for the disciples, which was Peter. They might have been intimidated by Jesus. Jesus had a strong reputation. But really, they were trying to trap Jesus and get Peter as a Jesus spokesperson, you know, like the White House representative, like standing up there, like, hey, say, you know, trip Peter up in the name of Christ and then we'll have him. Does your teacher not pay the tax? I mean, it's just rhetorically spoken. We're assuming he's not going to pay the tax. There's a tax out there and we don't have him on record for paying. So is he seeing himself as exempt? That's what they're doing. And Peter responds. He said, yes. That can be taken in one of two ways. That can be, yes, he thinks he's exempt or yes, he's going to pay. I personally think he's saying, yes, he's going to pay. There was a little bit of a debate in my research, but by and large, everybody's saying, Peter's saying yes. And I think the reason is, is because Jesus does pay it and he's teaching as to why. And so Peter's assumption is yes, or maybe Peter didn't know yes or no, but I think he's protecting Jesus nevertheless, rather than, you know, making him more vulnerable. So it's, yes, he's going to pay. Of course he's going to pay. They're back in Capernaum. Capernaum's like, you know, if you have, uh, you know, this 70-mile distance between Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee, this is the top of the Sea of Galilee. That's Capernaum, this fishing town. It's basically, you know, Jerusalem's anchorage, and this is Palmer. I mean, you know, it's, you're, he's up there. He's in that um, area reaching them, and there are little posts, little posts that where you would pay the tax, little tables set up, little booths set up to pay the tax in the name of the temple down in Jerusalem. And if you miss the pay date, then you actually have to go down there. And this is all done in the month of March, by the way, according to the Jewish calendar. It's all timely to where we are right now, thinking about taxes and getting it done by the deadline. And there's a census that's taken And every Jewish male that's 20 years and older owes this temple tax up to age 50. It's a half shekel. It's a two days wage, two drachma tax. It's not going to break the bank, but it's just something that you either do and see yourself obligated for or you don't. Does your teacher pay the tax? Exodus 30, verse 13 and 14 is where this was established. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. Second Chronicles 24, 9 echoes this. The proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to bring into the, in for the Lord the tax that Moses, the servant of God, laid on Israel in the wilderness, all based on the old covenant law. One scholar said the temple at Jerusalem was a costly place to run. Daily and morning, morning and evening sacrifices involving a year old lamb. The lamb was offered with wine, flour, and oil. All this cost money. The incense was burned every day. It was brought and prepared. Costly hangings, robes, priests constantly um, wore out their robe. The robe of the high priest itself was worth the king's ransom. It all required money. So they established that tax. But this would have been an awkward question. We're wondering, is if Jesus is saying, I'm out, I'm above this tax, we shouldn't wonder whether or not this would be very negative. I mean, they, Jesus was, was operating as a religious figure in the religious centers that were synagogues and 
representatives of the temple. He was, he was known in association with temple preaching. He cast demons out in the temple. So are you going to pay a tax or not? Method of collection was carefully organized. The scholar goes on to say, it was the first month of Adar, which is March. It was once a year. Towns and villages of Palestine, um, they would, would gather the tax. On the 15th of the month, booths were set up in each town and village. At the booths, the tax was paid. And the tax, if it wasn't paid by the 25th of Adar or March, it would be paid directly. It had to be paid directly face-to-face at the temple in Jerusalem. It was built off the census. But then at this point in the religious system, which was work-based, works-based, Pharisee and Sadducee run, was godless. This was a tax that was being leveraged for gain. Ultimately, by the time Matthew's gospel would be read and this text would be read, in AD 80 and above or beyond, the temple had already been destroyed. Rome came in and demolished Jerusalem in AD 70, if you'll remember that. And so Christians would be reading this, wondering what they're supposed to do with the government that's gone completely Roman and is pagan. Scholars said that, that after the destruction of the temple, Vespasian, the Roman emperor, enacted the half-shekel temple tax that should now be paid to the treasury of the temple of Jupiter. So it was pagan. Capitolonius in Rome. It was, it was something that easily a Christian would say, I don't need to do this. In church history, both in our country and others, people will say, in the name of God, I am exempt. Is that mindset and testimony satisfactory, though? A Christian nationalist that's swinging the pendulum uber strong against the woke militant liberalism says, no way. It's a posture of rebellion, saying, we're not going to pay into the pagan system. The government is no longer following a Christian ethic. I question whether or not I be, need to be submissive to it at all. By the way, of course, if the government says we can't preach, we can't teach, we can't evangelize, we can't worship, even privately, then I think we do protest. I think we do it anyway. The apostles set this precedent, Acts 5, 28. The Sanhedrin said, we strictly charge you not to teach in the name, in this name. Yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. So I believe in that. But also believe in submission where we can, where we're directed by governing authorities to do that. According to Romans 13, 1 and 2, and following 1 Peter chapter 2, we're supposed to submit to the king and the governor, the governance of our land. The question of the collectors is directed to Peter. It's a clear assessment that Jesus isn't giving, and Peter unhesitatingly responds that Jesus intended to pay it. Verse 25, yes, yes, he intends to pay it. I think Peter was nobly covering for Jesus, buying time, but there's no reason to believe that Jesus wasn't intending to pay it. But they wanted to catch him up short. The temple tax would be like our modern-day government tax. This all came, I think it's helpful to understand how pagan it became. 
because it came from an original Old Covenant directive that we'd already read from the book of Exodus under Mosaic law. Do you remember the kings were established out of that? And you had Saul, the first king, then David, the second king, Solomon, David's son, the third king. These were um, David and Solomon were believing kings, but then ultimately the corruption, even in Solomon's life and the sins um, uh, became pervasive. And so the kingdom split. You have a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. You have the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah. You have the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom that was subsumed in, in God's judgment by an Assyrian captivity, 722, 722 BC, 700 plus years before the coming of Christ. You have this kingdom that's swept away into Assyria. And then farther east, you have Babylon and Babylonian captivity that comes in in 586 BC, 586 years before the coming of Christ. You have Babylonian captivity. You have Israel and Jerusalem that's just in ravaged um, wreckage from war. And you have Cyrus. You'll remember his name as a ruler post-Darius in the book of Daniel that was raised up as the Persian leader. And ultimately, he wanted to send the Jews back as a remnant to recover Jerusalem under God's direction and design. He sent Zerubbabel and some Jews back. Zerubbabel was sort of a chief contractor to rebuild the temple, under, and he was under the Davidic line. So it was like this was um, the rebuilding of the second temple. Artaxerxes, the next ruler in the Persian Empire, sent Nehemiah back to rebuild the walls. You remember that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then Ezra was there to open the law of God as a preacher. And so there was rebuilding. But when the temple was rebuilt and the walls were rebuilt and all of that, the glory of God um, was present, but it was never the same. It was never as strong as before. Something was off. And it was the beginnings of a a post sort of God government. It was falling apart and it went into 400 years of silence where God as a prophet through the prophets was not no longer speaking. Malachi was the final prophet and that's why our Bibles are broken up the way they are and it goes into 400 years of silence and dark times, the intertestamental period before Christ would be born and he's the dawning shining light of the Messiah to save people from a false religion that was promising God but couldn't be anything far, further from the truth. Truth. Pharisees and Sadducees teaching a works-based religion. Pharisees and Sadducees, where there is no more scathing rebuke of people on earth than Matthew 23, where they're called whitewashed tombs and empty leaders and hypocrites that are under damning judgments. Under this authority, it's called Second Temple Judaism. It's the Second Temple. The temple was rebuilt under this false system. That's what Jesus is saying, yes, I'll pay. I just want you to hear that. I wanted you to hear the history, where it came from, what it came to, and Jesus says, still says yes. It's an interesting thing. And we have to ask why. Would he pay? Yes. Why will he pay? Why wouldn't he just say Hang it on your beak. I'm not going to pay. I don't need to do that. I mean, these, these are the money changers. Matthew 21, 12. What did Jesus do when he entered the temple? He entered the temple. He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats and those who sold pigeons. This is the, the uh, commerce exchange where pilgrims would come in for Passover, per se. 
for instance, and they would come in and they would need a dove or they would need something to sacrifice and they would have their money and they would say, well, we need to exchange it. And then they would money change and then they would upsell them or charge them more with the tariff or whatever and rip them off. And Jesus is saying this house of prayer has been turned into a den of robbers. So why did Jesus pay the tax? He'll pay the full tax for this reason. This is point B. If you're, you know, two questions, would he pay the tax? I believe yes, even to a pagan government. But why would he do it? Because he's free to do it. He's free. His freedom is the basis for his engagement, even in a pagan culture. To submit and subordinate yourself in a pagan culture does not X out your, your freedom in Christ, your Christian freedom, who you are, your identity as a Christian. You want to walk in this world where it's not transfigured heaven on earth. It's brass tacks, hard living life in a sin-cursed world with paganism, persecution, pressure, these problems, indictments, fears. You're free. You have to know that you're free. You have to know your freedom to be able to keep sane in a culture like this. You have to get sane through free, under, an understanding of your freedom. Verse 25. He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus, a private conversation with Peter in Capernaum, probably Peter's house. Jesus spoke to him first. Hey, Peter, come over here. I saw it. Yeah, I don't know if he overheard what was going on or knew it omnisciently or whatever, but he knew of that exchange. He said, what do you think, Simon? He's telling him a story, kind of setting up a parable. What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? Who do they, who do they tax? Who does a king tax? From their sons or from others? Their noble line, their boys in the house, do they take their money? Does he set up a law and take their money or others? It's very obvious he's leading them, leading Peter to an obvious conclusion. And when he said, from others, Peter said, of course, from others. Jesus, in a matter-of-fact way, immediately says this. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. I just want you to get that. Kings, sons, taxes. Kings aren't going to tax their bloodline. Their son, that'd be confusing. That'd be inappropriate. That doesn't work. It doesn't jive. They're free. They're exempt. And by the way, if the Bible stopped right there in this story, we wouldn't have to pay taxes. Woo, we're out. It doesn't stop there, though, but... The freedom has to begin with the understanding of who you are in the Lord. You're a son of the king, even as you live in post-Christian governance, largely post-Christian governance. Jesus argues the willingness to yield based on freedom. What do you think, Simon? He's going back, I think, to the original intent of the law where you have Um, the temple tax, and you have uh, that Old Testament economy, the old covenant system. You had kings, and you had sons of the king in that system. Clearly, in Second Temple Judaism, not so much, right? Things unraveled 
I mean, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had synchronized with Rome at this point, and you have four tetrarchs. We've talked about this, Moabite, um, sort of um, racially mixed men who were under the Herods. There were four sons under Herod the Great in the four different quadrants of this region, and they're ruling as Roman henchmen on the name of Rome, in the name of Rome. So that's kind of confusing. Jesus is retroing back to a clear king with a clear line of nobility to say, who pays? Are they responsible to pay? That was the original intent of all of this. No, they don't. It's a two-kingdom mindset where you have physical kings and nobility that parallels the spiritual kingdom mindset of we are citizens of heaven, we are servants of the king of kings and lord of lords, and we're sons. And so it doesn't jive for us to be obligated to pay anything to anyone because we're already assured of heaven. What are they going to do, kill us? They're going to send us right to heaven. So how does this work? Living that way and still living as a witness down here on earth. It's a two-kingdom mindset. You had to be clear on the two-kingdom mindset. There's nobody who is more clear on this two-kingdom mindset than the Son of God. You have God the Father who is king, and you have God the Son who is also king, but he is the Son of God. So as the Son of God, he is the point of the temple. People go to the temple to worship him in glory. So does he have to pay a temple tax? Well, Jesus is free from that tax. According to the system, it would be inappropriate for Jesus to pay something like that. But even though Jesus is the epitome of a noble son, Philippians 2 says he made himself of nothing. King James Version, he made himself of no reputation. He took on the form of a slave, of a servant. He's free as the son of God, and he's a subordinate by choice. Because of his freedom, he submits. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's a two-kingdom citizen mindset. We are sons. We are co-equal heirs. We're as if we're already in heaven, but we're here on earth in a willing subordination like Jesus did. A willing submission like Jesus did. This is our opportunity to do that. Surrendering personal rights, that's what Jesus did. Surrendering freedoms, that's what Jesus did. Taking the form of a servant. Now, let me just try to harmonize this mindset. Our democratic society caters to the point of equality, and we know that we are equal, made in the image of God. That's a Bible principle. Humanity is all children of God in terms of him being the creator. The Bible makes no bones about this. We're the apex of his creation. We're the sons of God. So that's, um, you know, something that cuts cross grain from, you know, people, you know, saying I'm better than you or you're better than me. We, we, we know that we're all part of humanity. Hebrews 2, 6 and 7. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower Yet you made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. We understand that. If someone kills someone, um, according to the principle of Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. That's the principle of the death penalty. Because if you're killing somebody who's made in the image of God, that's a horrible offense. It's a capital offense. 
But at the same time, there was still the caste system. There's still kings. There's still princes. There's still commoners. There's still priests. There were still prophets in the Old Testament, which show people in different realms and ranking system of authority. In the New Testament, you have three institutions. You have the government, you have family, and you have the church. In the government, you have magistrates, you have leaders, you have governors, you have governors, you have military, you have police to enforce laws, to keep everyone safe. So you have equality amongst humanity, but at the same time, you have people who are ranking in structure in order to keep things going well. In the family, it's the same thing. You have husbands, you have wives, you have mothers, you have children, you have a ranking system and structure. Even though they're all humans, equal in the image of God, you have ranking in order. That spiritualizes in the Trinity. You have the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit, three persons, equal in essence power and glory and yet subordinate in roles you have the father who's the head the son who is the son under the father and the holy spirit who's promoting the son subordination is not wrong submission is not a bad word rank order system structure we see it in the church we have elders and pastors we have we have deacons we have people in different roles leading in different ways, servant leaders. You have people who are different within the body of Christ, some gifted to teach, some gifted more to serve behind the scenes. But all of that for the glory of God. There's a co-equal airship and, and unity and within the body and equality, and yet there are different ranks and functions within the church. You see this on a structural subatomic level in the molecules and under the microscope. You see order and design even on an atomic level. You have atmospheric levels on in the macrosphere where you see the celestial beings and the order and the seasons and the way that the atmosphere works in homeostasis where we are a certain distance from the sun so that we can breathe, so that we don't burn up, so that we don't freeze to death. All of that is held in perfect design and order. God is a God of design. God is a God of order and structure. So order and structure is not what's wrong with the world. The woke movement says that's what's wrong with the world. It's oppression. It's redefined as oppression and the oppressed and victimization. The problem with that comes from sin, not from structure and design. Even the echelons of angel are structured and designed with the archangels, Michael, Gabriel, and you have the different realms that are listed in, you know, everywhere from Genesis 3 to the Psalms to Romans to Colossians to Revelation 4 and 5, Isaiah 6. You have different angelic appearances, Ezekiel. You have structure even within hell where people are being um, punished at varying levels based on sins committed in this lifetime. The woke agenda makes no room for structure, for subordination, for submission. And yet that's not what's wrong. You know, I, a friend of mine who's also a relative of mine, a distant cousin, is in the FBI, said that, you know, if law and order was removed, we would just be, you know, we would be victimized by anarchy and chaos and, you know, militant structures that would rise up like in third world countries where you have the cartel and things and we need to praise God for structure it's a long digression just to say we are supposed to see ourselves as citizens of heaven co-equal heirs with Christ sons of God and at the same time we are willing to submit within a structure but why would we be willing to do this? What, 
what is it that we are going at? And what is Jesus talking about? We're saying that we have to be not only understanding that we're free, but also that we are ambassadors of Christ. We're those who give, who submit to be a witness for Christ. We submit because we are ambassadors for Christ. What does that mean? Well, it surely doesn't mean that you stay in a victimized situation. I want to be clear, having said that we should submit and be subordinate, that if you're being abused because of sin, you should get out of that situation. Even in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it says that if you're a slave in that context, you should seek your freedom. When you understand that you are free, you understand that you have a life to live where whatever time the Lord has given you, your expectations are to live in this freedom and live to his glory, but you're living on bided time. And so what you do with your time that's remaining is you witness and you want people to enter into the kingdom. Why would you submit within a pagan government? It's to win people to Christ. You are free to submit. You're free to give up your rights. You're free to come under a system and to win people to the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to influence things politically with the gospel and with Christian, Judeo-Christian principles and a godly ethic. But ultimately, we should be about calling people and winning them into the kingdom. We're ambassadors. Look at verse 27. It says, however... Not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the fish, the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, apparently there is a kind of ground-dwelling fish, probably like some kind of catfish, that lives on the bottom of of the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and would scoop up coin here and there. Like it's something that actually could happen. But for Jesus to say the first fish you scoop up is going to be the exact amount that will account for both of us with this tax, that's impossible. That's what the Lord is up to and what he's doing. And so why why is he going about this? He's saying, first of all, that you need to give something because we don't want to give an offense. This, the word scandalizo, it's, we don't want to be a scandal. The reason that you do right, even in a pagan system, where you're not violating laws, you're not violating biblical principle, is you don't want somebody to stumble over your witness and believe that you're better than what the system is requiring you to do. We've laid aside our freedom and we're willing to give of ourselves in a witness. You pay the tax for submission's sake, but you pay it for a witness sake. Romans 13 talks about this, about being um, submissive or subject to governing authorities. Romans 13, 8 says, no, oh, oh, no one anything except love each other. That's not just talking about taxes. That's talking about if you borrow anything from anyone to preserve your, quitness, your Christian witness, you want to owe no one anything except love. It's fulfilling the law of love. You don't want to give an offense. You don't want to be a scandal, a scandal on or an offense that people will stumble over. So how did he recover this?
tax money. Well, they didn't go into the coffers. They didn't go into their own budget. This is something that was provided outside of the budget. And it was provided very specifically. Just cast a hook. And this fish, I think it was called an ichthys, if I have that right, will come up with the exact amount that we need. A two drachma, a half shekel, equaling two days wage. It's more than enough to, a full shekel was more than enough to cover Jesus and Peter. It's a kind of a, old-time story about a pastor, W.A. Criswell, who forgot his offering for Sunday morning. He was First Baptist Dallas for 50 years, like during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, 80s. And he was on the platform, and he was next to the guest preacher, and he said, uh, son, I do not have my offering. And so um, do you, you know, the offering plates are coming. And so do you have an offering that we could give? Like I reached in his pocket, and he said, well, I, I, I Two one hundred dollar bills. He said, "Perfect. We will give one for each of us." You know, and and so he did that. Uh, the Lord here gives a meticulous answer um, to their need. It's the perfect amount. It's in coming in an unexpected way. It's discretionary money, and it's a way to see that God will provide. But why did He provide in this odd way through a fish? I think for three reasons. I just kind of came up with these as I meditate on the text. First, it was a supernatural means of provision to point out the fact that this offering was coming directly from one kingdom into another. Two-kingdom mindset. We, we operate in two worlds. I'm a citizen of heaven and of earth. And so as a citizen of heaven, that's feeding my, my witness and my opportunity to be a witness and provide this tax money. Second reason is that this is God's endorsement to witness in this way. He's endorsing it. The fish has it. The shekel is there. This is obviously something God wants us to do. Don't cause people to stumble over a lesser thing. Think about it. You want people to stumble over the gospel, not you. You don't want to be some kind of pig-headed person who says, well, I'm above this and I don't need to do this and I want to fix the world in my own way. No, you just look at the providential opportunity and do the right thing and don't make your witness, you know, be a bad one. Thirdly, Jesus provided this shekel supernaturally, I think is a a final way to say, yes, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the humiliation of the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. But I still control the universe. So here's the shekel. How do we bring this home to our government, government system? Well, Stephen Wolf's book is something to look out for. I'm not recommending it. I did read the um, long um, review by Kevin DeYoung. I would recommend you read that. Um, it's a top 2,000 book bestseller for Amazon. He said this, I know the instinct that assumes that whatever position seems most conservative must be correct, especially if that position is hated by the left. But that's not a foolproof instinct. And besides, Wolf makes clear that the product project is not conservative. We're better to see Wolf's vision as one of several post-liberal ideologies that are growing on the radical right. Then he says this, listen to this carefully. Biblical instincts are better than nationalistic ones. And the ethos of the Christian nationalism project fails the biblical smell test. 
Well, the person who goes all in on this book and the person who says yes to every rant, the person who feels drawn to the vision of ethnic separation and the person who is just biding his time until, the, and he calls him the Christian prince, until the Christian prince arrives and the revolution is ready to start, will he be apt to grow in faith, hope, and love? Will he be led to rejoice insofar as he shares in Christ's sufferings? And if the end of things is at hand, will he be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of his prayers? Or will this book help us return reviling for reviling? In other words, responding in kind, mixing it up. We don't want to be in the flesh. Jesus' intent here for the biblical balance of how we're supposed to live, back to our text, is to remove all stumbling blocks. You know why? Because people need to stumble over Jesus and the gospel, not over our bad decision. Jesus is the chief cornerstone, and people either stumble, they'll stumble over him one way or the other. They'll either stumble over him and repent and be broken in repentance, or they will be broken by their own pride to their own detriment. 1 Peter 2 Four through eight were living stones rejected by men in the sight of God chosen as precious were living stones that make up a spiritual house. But then it says, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy.